Well, again, we're back in the book of Acts, as we mentioned last week, after a Lenten respite, and then a resurrection, extended look at the resurrection, and then an extended look at the Trinity. Last week, we dove back in to the back end of the book of Acts, and we'll press on until we, uh, until we conclude. And we mentioned last week that Paul had ended his second missionary journey, and in chapter 19 quickly began his third missionary journey. He ended his second missionary journey by coming to the city of Ephesus. They asked him to stay. He didn't stay. He then went back to Antioch, you'll remember, and then turned around and came back on his third and final missionary journey. I say final meaning the last one through that region. He went up through Turkey, Macedonia, Greece, and then back this last time. He will then go to Rome, uh, you may know from the end of uh, Acts. Some consider that a fourth missionary journey uh, because Paul desired, and even in this text we're told, as Mark read it to us today, that it was his desire to go to Rome. And, and that's why he was, he was on this last trip, but he very much desired to go to Rome. And uh, we believe to go to Rome to set up a second missionary base, his first missionary base, his home, if you will, had become Antioch in Syria. You'll remember that, and you'll see that in the map uh, that, that you've had. That's kind of been his home base. But it's as if now he's going to go to Rome, set up a second home base, from which most believed he was going to go even further uh, west. He was going to go out uh, to Spain and, and to bring the gospel out into Europe. He will, by God's providence, not be allowed to do that. But he will get to Rome. It just won't be voluntarily. He's going... <laughs> He's going to be arrested and uh, shipped off to Rome. And I think Paul even can see the, uh, uh, the, the, the providence of God working out to accomplish the thing he longed for, just not the way probably he planned on it. So Paul knows that this is the end for him in terms of these journeys, that he, he may very well not see these churches again. Um, and as he uh, begins his third journey, we know he passes through the cities in, uh, in Turkey, the ones he loved, we talked about uh, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, uh, just continually visiting those churches, but then here uh, makes his way down to Ephesus. Ephesus, you'll see, there is on the west uh, coast of Turkey. And so he comes back, and here he hunkers down. He's actually in Ephesus now for two years. We heard last week that he followed his pattern by coming into Ephesus, as he did in most of these cities, going first to the synagogue, preaching and teaching there until he was rejected and kicked out, and then he would go to the Gentiles. It's not as if the Gentile preaching to the Gentiles was some kind of plan B, as if it would not have been done. Paul knew he was called to be God's man to the Gentiles, but Paul's way to the Gentiles was going to be first by dealing with his kin, by dealing with the Jews, and then desiring acceptance of the gospel and participation in the proclamation out to the Gentiles. But as he went city to city, it generally did not work that way. It worked the way it worked for Christ. He would come into the synagogue, teach, be received by some, to be sure, but uh, rejected by the majority. Paul would then shake, if you will, the dust off of his garments and feet and then head out into the streets. Paul follows this pattern in Ephesus coming to the synagogue teaching for about three months. And then after being rejected in mass, 
he then went out and you'll remember he spoke in the lecture hall of Tyrannus right this school that was there this lecture hall that was there in Ephesus and Paul would go preach there teach there daily while at the same time you know you'll remember he's a tent maker he's actually earning his keep he'll say to the Ephesians when he finally says goodbye to them in chapter 20 again he loves these Ephesians these disciples this church he loves the Ephesians very dearly he will actually make that one last visit on the back end of this third missionary journey to Miletus where he'll summon the Ephesian elders to come talk to him he wants to he wants to give them a farewell it's a tearful uh, and, and wonderful farewell but he loves the Ephesians very much and as he as he does he says to them you, you remember I did not lean on you for my livelihood so the tent making is continuing here through Ephesus he's earning a living and then spending basically the morning hours doing his tent making and then the afternoon hours just teaching in the hall of Tyrannus and then we assume uh, also in the streets so what we get here in uh, the text that Mark read uh, the, the rest if you will of chapter 19 is the confrontation now this is really two years of ministry and we're condensed now to the to the back end of it. Paul's just about to leave when we have this breakout with Demetrius. So the two years of ministry now kind of finding its climax. And what we find in the back end of this chapter is confrontation. I entitled the sermon Spiritual Warfare in Ephesus. Not really, not, a, not, not my most creative title. But, uh, but the title summarizing essentially what we have here in two episodes of Spiritual Warfare. On the one hand, we have this demonic encounter on the front end of, the, of our text today, and then this economic, political, cultural encounter on the back end with Demetrius. But what we, I believe, ought to take from this is a picture of gospel confrontation. That I think a text like this ought to do its job in us in preparing for us and setting for us the story that we're in when we, when we live as Christ in the world. Now, this is a challenge for us, again, because we're in America, and for most of our lives and for, for much of recent history, uh, uh, the, the culture in which we live has been pretty saturated with Christianity. It has not been a pagan society, though I don't deny that there's non-Christians and non-Christian influence within our society, that there's not paganism in our society. But there is no question, it's not to be doubted, that our culture has been shaped, affected by a Christian worldview, even in ways that our non-believing neighbors don't even know. They're unaware uh, the, of the fact that so many of the values that they have, think about, for example, the value for justice. Right? I mean, we, we have this great longing and crying out for social justice and, and, and caring for the outcast and the downtrodden. It would be, a, if you ever engage in non-believer, you might ask them why. Now, you'll sound like a complete jerk for just asking the question. And so you want to follow it up by saying, I agree with the need for justice. But, but why do you? Why should we care about any other human being? Why should I care about minorities? Why should I care about the oppressed? Why should I give them any bit of my attention, any bit of my care, any bit of my effort, any bit of my money? Why should I care at all? There's a Christian value undergirding that that says, here's why, right? Christianity makes sense 
of the desire and the need, the care for the oppressed and the downtrodden. But so many don't even see that the desire, the values that we have really lay on a bedrock foundation of Christianity. Take away the bedrock of Christianity, you go back to paganism. And we don't really know paganism in America, right? We don't, we, we don't know what that looks like because we've been so saturated. Perhaps we sense that as we look at what's happening in Europe and we see what's happening in America, our fear with a small F, not a capital F fear, but our concern is that we are heading, heading back in that direction, right? I mean, you, you, you take the values that we long for of justice and equity and you know, all these kinds of things, the flower of those rights, and we recognize that they, it's a beautiful flower indeed, but it's because it has roots down in the soil, right, that are, that are grabbing, that are giving new, taking nutrients and feeding the beautiful flower. We recognize that, that the, the rights, the desire for equity, all these kinds of things are the flower that are feeding on a Christian worldview. And so when a culture decides to snip the flower and say, we don't want that worldview anymore, we reject that, the flower lasts for a little while. You can snip roses, and you know, we've all done it. Put them in the vase, try to feed them, and you can for a period of time, but they are not going to last. And neither are these values, if you will, that have been the flower of a Christian worldview. So it's challenging for us to put ourselves in the place of Paul and these disciples in Ephesus and to expect this kind of confrontation, and yet we know it's coming. We feel it growing, even in this culture. And so I think what we need to do as best we can, when we look at Acts chapter 19, is say, Lord, help me get this story into my bones. Help me get this story into my brain and into my imagination as the framework of what happens when the gospel comes to bear on a society and on a culture that does not honor you. We have two stories. The first is very bizarre, indeed. Um, and the second is pretty wild. Right? Demetrius stirring up the crowds because the economy has been rocked because of Christianity, oh, brothers and sisters, that the American economy would be rocked because of faithful Christians. That just, not because of these, these Christians were not holding boycotts and protests, although they did burn their stuff, we'll talk about that in a second, but not as, like a, not as a protest, but as an act of faithfulness. Oh, that the American Christians would be so faithful in their pursuit of Jesus Christ that it would end up undercutting the idolatries the, the idolatrous businesses of the Ephesian culture, oh, that it would happen in America. And that people would say, what are we going to do about these Americans? They're killing our economy. Oh, that would, be, that would be awesome. So hard for us to imagine this kind of thing happening. But we can, we can dream. We can dream. Well, let's not jump ahead. Let's go to the first story. The first story is a very unusual one. We have, we have Paul, who's working away with his, his tent making, and, and by God's grace, it's very clear. Luke is very clear. What's, what's awesome about this is the fact that Luke is a doctor. Right? Luke is not a fly-by-night. Luke is not, you know, sort of just a guy who doesn't understand medicine and science. And Luke is the one who records for us what's happening here. 
But notice the way he starts it. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So one thing is, Luke notes right off the bat, this is not Paul. This is God. Remember, we challenged Luke's idea of the naming of the book of Acts. I, he, he would probably not want it to be called the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think he would like that. He would want it to be called the continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostles. But Luke would not want this to be called the Acts of the Apostles. And here you get another taste of that. It's not that, wow, and Paul did some amazing stuff. Because the stuff that's happening here is amazing. His handkerchiefs are healing people. Okay. Now listen, as Americans, we should immediately be like, what? Because we know. We, one of the great exports of America, I say great tongue-in-cheek, one of the horrible exports of America are televangelists who sell handkerchiefs that heal people. When I'm in Kenya, they know this stuff. They're very upset and cynical about it because they've seen what it has done to communities with these guys coming in on their private jets and basically saying, hey, you know, for this or that, you, you can get this handkerchief, you know, and they didn't talk about handkerchiefs, but we've seen it. We've seen it on TBN. We've seen it on these Christian television networks, which is like, you can get the prayer cloth, send in this amount, we'll pray over it, we'll bless it, we'll send it back to you, you know, and, and who knows what the Lord will do, what miracles will be wrought because of these hankies or whatever little claws or whatever they're doing. But that activity is sort of rooted in a perverse way back to this. Because that's actually what's happening here, except Paul's not soliciting money. Paul's not saying, hey, listen, for, for 25 shekels, I can give you a little portion of my hankies because, because these things have been, been pretty potent. I don't know how the handkerchiefs are making their way to these sick people, but all I know is that the Lord is doing, according to Luke, the physician, the Lord is doing very unusual miracles. Now, Luke has seen some miracles. But even Luke confesses these, are, these were unusual ones. <laughs> now, I mean, in my opinion, all miracles are unusual, right? That's what makes them miracles. Well, these are the unusual, unusual ones. Because Paul, of course, is doing some amazing and blessed things. The Lord is doing them through Paul. But in this case, his handkerchiefs and his aprons brought from his body to the sick are healing them. So Luke's done at the end of the day from tent making, takes off the handkerchief from around his head, and somebody takes that to some sick guy, and the sick guy is healed. I assume it's by Luke's direction, or excuse me, by Paul's direction. But it is happening one way or the other, and Luke records it, that these things are happening. In some ways, it's the, when I first read this, and was thinking through it, the story it reminded me of was Jesus with the, Romans, with the sick servant of the Roman centurion. Now, no handkerchief was passed, um, but it was sort of healing from a distance, a distance because of the faith of the centurion. And it's almost as if something like that is continuing. We know there's no magic power. There's no spiritual power inherent in the handkerchiefs. It's just God lifting up Paul in using him and even these articles of his clothing to grant healing. Why? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God just answer prayer? I have to assume that perhaps they were praying 
Why wouldn't God just answer the prayer? Why has it got to be Paul's handkerchief? Well, we, 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 we tread on dangerous turf here when we try to figure out why. But I think we can say, on safe ground, by looking at the purpose of all miracles, like what was the purpose of miracles? God answers prayer all the time, but why these unusual miracles? What, what was the point of them at the time of Jesus? What, were, what was the point of them at the time of Moses? What was the point of them at the time of Elijah? And the answer is to be, if you will, like a stamp of approval by God in a very dramatic, undeniable way upon his servant, upon his sent one, his apostle. That's what apostle means. He sent from me. Let, let me give some verification so that you know when he speaks, listen up. Even his handkerchief is healing sick people. I give him the power, the ability, as he did with the other apostles, even Peter, to do these miracles as validations, verifications of the fact that these men were, in fact, apostoleo. They were sent ones by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not even the bizarre part about this story. <laughs> Luke, just, Luke just introduces that. Hey, some amazing things were happening. But as this started happening, these handkerchiefs and aprons that are going out and doing these amazing things by the power of God catches people's attention. And some of the things that are happening are demons are being cast out. Again, the confrontation. The gospel is coming into a place that is a land filled with gods, as are all lands. Don't, don't even, even the nuns, I don't know if you follow this phenomenon in America, right? The nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? Who, I don't even care about God. Oh, they have gods. We are a land full of idols. It's like when Paul comes into Athens and he sees, he says, oh, I see you're a very religious people. Yes, America is a very religious people. Look, have eyes to see it, and ask yourself, where are the shrines? Where are the temples in our culture? They're there. Very, very obvious if you look. Look in our big cities. Right? Look in our countryside. You'll see the shrines of our culture. We're a very religious people. We just don't think we are. But as the gospel comes into a land filled with gods, there's confrontation. And Paul is doing this, and demons are coming out. Not just sick people being healed, but demons are coming out of people. Well, these Jewish exorcists happen to be in Ephesus. I don't know if they got a little side business. I don't know what they're doing, these seven sons of Sceva. But they've got a little thing going where they're doing exorcisms as Jews. And I don't know whether they're not being fruitful, they're not being effective. I don't know. But they see that this guy, Paul, is being very effective. Even his handkerchiefs are, are bringing demons out. So they decide that in their little exorcism business, they're going to start throwing around the name of Jesus. So they come into a house, seven of them, to deal with this demon-possessed man. And they decide the name of Jesus, I can't deny it, it's been very powerful. So they decide to try casting out this demon by naming the name of Jesus. And they say, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They, I don't necessarily, but, but Paul, he has a lot of power. And so they kind of lean, they try to draft in behind Paul and use his name. They're throwing his name around. And of course, throwing the name of Jesus around. These are non-believing Jews. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the power of Jesus Christ. But if you will, they're like syncretists. They, they'll go for whatever they think works. They're like most Americans. 
who don't have any belief in God until there's a problem. And then they know you're a person of prayer. They might ask you to pray, but they would also ask somebody else to pray. Anything. Let's, we'll grab for anything if it might possibly work and heal my child or heal me or help me get a job or whatever. These guys are like modernists. They're like, whatever works. If, Paul, if Paul's reaching out to this God, this idea, this name, we'll try it. Well, it does not go so well for these guys. It really does not end well because they get an encounter the encounter of their lives, but it is not the encounter they planned on because they get in there and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I tell you, come out, and the demon speaks back to them. And says, who are you? He says, hey, I get it. I know Jesus. I know who that is, right? I mean, this is, this is, go back to the time of Jesus. This kind of stuff happened, right? Jesus would come along and they would argue with him. They'd say, hey, we know you're Jesus, the son of God, but, but now's not the time. Why, why are you doing this now? You know, why are you doing this to us? They know Jesus. James says, even the demons know there's one God. They tremble. They get that. They're very good theologians. So when these Jewish leaders say, we cast you on the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, they say, no, 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 we know, we know who he is. And we definitely know about Paul. We, you know, we're dealing with him. But who the heck are you? You, you don't have any authority to be throwing around the name of... I mean, they, they know. So these guys, I have to believe, are shocked because they, they, they're shysters. And the demon now speaks back to them. And then the demonic possessed man attacks them and beats the tar out of all seven of them. The Greek text actually says he exerted dominion over them. He pummels all of them so badly that they're bruised and bloody and naked. They, they, all seven of them go running out of the house naked into the streets. And let me tell you something. Word of this gets around. Immediately the press is hit, the photographers are there, everybody's pulling out their phones, clicking pictures of this, and it immediately is out there on Twitter, YouTube, everywhere because it, get, it spreads all over, not just Ephesus, but all over Asia Minor. These seven sons of Sceva are humiliated, but the word spreads about the name of Jesus, about the work of Paul, and the confrontation of the gospel. It's embarrassing for these seven jokers, but nonetheless, the Lord uses it in a very powerful way. So verses 17 to 19, look at the effects now as the gospel, which has now been working for two years there in Ephesus, and even a little beyond, is coming to clash with the culture. Look at the effect that it has had in verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This bizarre and awkward and embarrassing confrontation brought about these amazing lists of results. 
again, what do we have to learn here? Well, we have to learn, one again, the, the fundamental theme that I want to carry through this is that when the gospel confronts a culture, it, it is, it's a violent confrontation. It's not just a general... I mean, go read the stories of missionaries who brought the gospel into foreign places. Right? I'm not saying there are no stories where it was said and the ground was prepared and bang, it was received, that there's no stories like that. But generally, when the gospel breaks ground, when the gospel comes into a culture, it comes and confronts the gods who are embedded in that culture. And usually the, the confrontation is violent. Jesus told his disciples to be prepared for this. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be gentle. It's not going to be mild or subtle. They are going to hate you. There are principalities and powers that are embedded and invested within all cultures. And Paul, to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, will tell them, you all need to put on your spiritual armor because the ones we war against are not Demetrius, who is the next story, right? Not, not the shrine builders of Ephesus, but the ones we wage war against are the principalities and the powers that are embedded here in your city. It manifests itself in people. There's a demoniac there. There's Demetrius. There's a riotous crowd that gathers in the theater. But the battle is with the powers behind the people. The battle and the ones you need the armor for and the, 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 the reason why your weapon is much more powerful than the weapons of man, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. Your weapon is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. The reason that's your weapon is because you are battling, battling spiritual powers. Not that person, not that group, but you're battling spiritual powers. And we're seeing that here in this text. As with Jesus, so also with Paul, the gospel comes and the demonic powers, the ones who have their claws in the people of Ephesus, come to do war. And Paul is casting them out. And even through this bizarre imitation story that happens through the seven sons of Sceva, the result is, in this confrontation, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified. That as the people see this confrontation, fear falls over them. The fear, ultimately, of the Lord, even that we talked about in Proverbs 2. I told Mark I'd work that in. Proverbs 2, the fear of the Lord, there it is. The fear comes over them, and they begin to confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does this confession and what does this conversion look like? And this is going to lead us into the second story. Awesome. It leads them to come together and to take the remnants of their former lives, the hooks, if you will, of these powers and principalities in their lives, these religious artifacts, these talismans, these charms, these little things that they leaned on for their hope with regards to these other gods, these prayer books, whatever they are, all of these religious artifacts, they take them and they put them in a big pile and they burn them. And they burn them publicly. So that's why I say there is a protest here, but it's not a, 
It's not a protest like tear down their businesses, but it is I want you to see that we are no longer under the captivity of these gods. We are no longer theirs. And there is a visible display right before their eyes. An economic display. I mean, I, I, do, I don't know what the value is of 50,000 pieces of silver at this time. But this is pretty significant, right? 50,000 pieces of silver. When they look at the value of everything that these confessing Christians, these Ephesian believers, come and bring of their old life, lay it in a big pile and burn it. This is like people who became Christians in the 70s burning all their rock and roll albums. I remember. I remember. I was a kid, but I remember adults who I looked up to telling me stories of how they did this. Who when they became Christians, they just could no longer. They really believed that that old way of life, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll was represented in some ways in their albums. And so they burned <laughs> their records, which today would be worth a lot of money, those vinyls. I wonder if many of them are going, did I have to burn them? I could have just put them in a... But they burned them. They burned them. These men and women come together, and they're not thinking about, hey, we can sell these things. Even sell them, again, like, like one commentator says, you know, you might, if Judas Iscariot was here, he would say, hey, at least sell them. Take the money and give it to the poor. How about we sell them and give the money to the church? This is not on their minds. There, for them, there is this radical break of their old life. I am no longer that. I'm not thinking about what we can do with the resource. I'm not thinking about, are there other things? That, what will these be valued one day? Burn them. And burn them publicly. Let the world know that we are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we break away from these things. So we've got the knowledge of this spreading. We've got the fear of the Lord spreading. We've got the name of the Lord Jesus Christ magnified. We've got people now running around confessing the name of Jesus. We've got people, uh, verse 18, telling their deeds. Then we've got people burning their, their 50,000 pieces of silver's worth of religious materials. And then most of all in verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The word of the Lord, the teaching of the Apostle Paul. But notice again, it doesn't say the teaching of the Apostle Paul. This is Luke, right? The word of the Lord as Paul preached it, but it's not about Paul. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Well, short, quickly here, that flies us into the second longer story, but for us it will be shorter. Because what we have here is another bizarre story. Because whether it's these guys burning their stuff and now this momentum starts to spread throughout Ephesus and not just Ephesus, but all through Western uh, Turkey of belief in Jesus Christ, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, abandoning their old cultural and religious habits, so much so that the economy of the artisans, like this guy Demetrius and his little trade guild who's a silversmith, who makes like these little shrines that you could come purchase and take home with you because the goddess Diana, the, 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 the uh, temple to the goddess Diana, which was in Ephesus, was one of the ancient wonders of the world, like the pyramids. 
the, 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 the temple to Diana was an amazing, world-renowned temple. People would you know, come from all over the world to see it, all over the Roman world. And you had all these silversmiths making trinkets. You know, I went to the Great Wall in China. You, you, you get off the bus, you, you go to the little trolley, and, and the, the, the cable car is going to take you up to the Great Wall. And you have to walk by, I mean, like a mile of these little trinket stores, all selling the exact same things, all summoning you. It's like, it's like the, the running the gauntlet to get down this mile to the to the, the cable car with just these people. Well, that's essentially what Demetrius is doing. You come to visit the great wonder of the world, the temple, and you've got to deal with Demetrius and all the gang selling you these silver trinkets and these shrines and all these little religious talismans and things. But as Paul has been there for two years, the gospel has had a cultural impact. Business is affected. The bottom line is is changing. It's turning the color red because the gospel is changing people's hearts and they're not interested in the trinkets. They're not interested in the shrines. And so Demetrius stirs up the crowd saying, hey, these guys are killing business. I find this fascinating, in fact, in, in uh, verses 26 and 27. He, he starts ripping on them. I'll jump back to verse 25. He called them together with all the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have had our prosperity by this trade. Just interesting, I'm, I chuckle at the priorities of old Demetrius here. He says, moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So that not only is this trade of ours in danger and falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed. I just like the priorities of old Demetrius. He's like, guys, our business is in jeopardy here. And yeah, and by the way, you know, even Diana's name is getting, you know, despised. But guys, it's, it's business. The business is being affected. And so he summons this mob, and the streets become filled with this riotous mob now, and they all gather down in the theater, arms raised, what are we going to do about this? Again, gospel confrontation. Even if in a city they didn't realize it for two years, it hits them after a while, you know what? Yeah, we don't like these Christians. I think that in many ways this is kind of where we are in America, right? Our culture's starting to catch on. These guys have been here for a while, but you know what? We re we're realizing we don't like them. We don't like their views. We don't like their thoughts. We don't like their teaching. Again, we're not here yet. But they gather the crowd. They all rally down in the theater. And they're upset, ripping and tearing. Who do we need to deal with to deal with this? What's amazing about this is Paul hears about it and says, I better get down there. It's a riotous mob. And Paul says, I better get there. I got some teaching to do. If they want to speak to somebody, they're going to speak to me. And I'm going to tell them about the name of Jesus Christ. And he starts walking toward the theater, and people jump in and grab him and say, no, 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 we cannot let you go there. Even the leaders of Asia, the secular leaders, tell him, no, 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 you need to stay away from here. And in this case, Paul does it. But it says something about the courage of Paul. There's a riotous mob. 
and Paul said, I'm going in. I don't know if you saw, I just happened to see on Twitter yesterday uh, that Andy No, I think he writes for, uh, is it the New York Times? New York Times, New York Post, I can't remember who he wrote, writes for, but he was out in Portland, and Antifa was there, and he was there just, he was, he's a journalist. But he's written some things about this or that that they didn't approve of, and they beat the tar out of him. And so there's, he, he, they stole his phone, his camera, they took everything of his, so there's no record of it. He, I saw he put out on Twitter, hey, if anybody, because he, he, he there, I saw an interview with him later, he's all beaten up, and he just asked if anybody had video, so of course somebody has it, and it ends up on Twitter. And, and so here you see him in the very beginning, people are just punching him and beating him and kicking him and throwing things at him, and you get this fear of like what that would be like to be in the middle of that, and he, he's, you can tell he's, he's trying to walk out and people are hitting him and throwing things at him, and he's, he's just trying to keep his pace and walk away and, and get out of the crowd. And as I was thinking about this text, I thought about the Apostle Paul who said, I want to go in there. This is about Jesus Christ. I'm going in. And he, he's like, you, you can't go in there. And they pull him back. They say, no, 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 not going to happen. But Paul says that this is what I signed up for. He doesn't go. He doesn't go. He's actually going to leave town shortly after this. But Paul knows this is what I signed up for. And then, of course, the thing gets calmed down. The clerk. The clerk stands up. And he says, guys, 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 this is, this is ridiculous. There's ways to handle this. Let's take it to court. We'll deal with it the proper way. And everybody says, you know what? All right. After two hours of chanting, Diana's great. Diana's great. This guy finally calms him down, says, you could do, handle this properly. Let's look like proper Ephesians. And they all go, you know what? You're right. And they go their way. But again, the point for us today, I think that we need to, and my prayer for us today is that we allow a text like this to remind us of the story that we're in. We are in a story. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but this is the truth of the story that we are in. We are in one that requires gospel confrontation. And it will have spiritual confrontations. It will have economic confrontations. But this is the story we are in. This is, like the Apostle Paul, what we signed up for. Jesus said it would happen. And he called us into it. Pick up your cross and follow me. In the book of Revelation, when the lamb is marching and the 144,000 are behind him, they're singing. And one of the ways that John describes them is he says, they are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And where he goes is into confrontation. Jesus came and there was confrontation spiritually, religiously, culturally, politically. Confrontation. Not because he was provoking it, but because the gospel provokes it. Because when you name the name of Christ, the demons come out. When you name the name of Christ, the cultural demons come out. The spiritual demons come out. The family demons come out. The social demons come out. Because we're at war. 
Again, one of the great reasons why I love preaching, teaching, thinking, reading about the book of Revelation is because it doesn't let you think anything else. The story you are in is one of confrontation. The beast hates the lamb. The harlot hates the bride. The dragon hates the father. Babylon hates Jerusalem. The light hates, or the darkness hates the light. And the book of Revelation says, to him who is faithful, to him who overcomes, to him or her who understands, who owns it, who embraces it, I will give. Go read all the, to all the churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. I will give. I will give a crown. I will give a white robe. I will give a name that no one knows but you and me. I will give for you to sit on my throne. But know what you're signing up for. The gospel brings confrontation. May we have the courage, the strength, the faithfulness to stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are cowards. We confess that we are the ones running away from the crowd, not into it. But we pray that you would strengthen us, even from texts like this, to remember what we've signed up for, to remember what you've enlisted us into. For Father, in many ways we've been spoiled in this American culture. We don't have the nerve because we haven't had to have it. But Father, we pray now that you would strengthen us. That you would give us the courage to speak, knowing that we are not war at war with our neighbors. We're not at war with our fellow citizens. We're not at war with people of other churches. We're at war with spiritual powers. And we love these people, and that's why we speak. That's why we confront. That's why we name the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we burn our talismans in the streets so that they might see and ask and question and join. So, Father, we pray that as in Ephesus, so in Westchester County, Putnam County, Rockland, Orange, and every county in the state and every state in the Union and every nation and kingdom in the world, that the name of Jesus, like in Ephesus, will be magnified. As you used Paul, so use us here at Affirmation, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.